History Month is like a celebration, and we've been doing it for the last, I don't know, four three or four years in different ways, in different capacities. And then, like, obviously, as you, as you probably know, the Bible takes place, it was written in Mesopotamia, in the Middle East, in parts of Africa. So, like, there's this idea and this phrase that I want to just affirm that, that black history is biblical history, right? There's a lot of overlap there that gets um, pushed to the sides and not centered as it should. Um, and so it's our pleasure here to kind of center it in a way that maybe is unusual to some of you who go to churches on a regular um, basis and not unusual for those of you who are in other communities that come to church on a regular basis. But what we get to do is learn from the scriptures today. What we get to do is learn from the ancient witness of the Bible and the ancient witness um, of black history as well as modern history for the black community. Last week, Pastor Ken did a phenomenal job, so I'm just going to give some flowers where those are deserved. Setting this up all last week was powerful. We were blessed by Ivan Moreland and Taylor Davis's music last week, which was phenomenal. Um, and I just want to give a resounding amen to everything that Ken preached. And um, uh, what today is, is meant to kind of come and expand upon those things in his message. Our theme for Black History Month, if you didn't catch it, is, And Still We Sing which involves this idea that, that, that music and the way it's utilized in the black community, one of the, um, and, and how it has shaped different things, um, has an effect on us today. One of the main lines that we're utilizing, um, and I don't think this, I don't think Blessed Assurance was written, was it written in the black community? I don't think it was necessarily, but it's, it captured this, this one line in particular that we wanted to keep in front of you. This is our story. This is our song. And in many ways, what Pastor Kim was trying to get us to understand is you can't just sing the song without understanding the story of black history because it tells the testimony of those things. So we're utilizing this idea. This is my story. This is my song. We're exploring how music in the black community has impacted our culture abroad, but specifically the way, as the word says, and still we sing, the way it has displayed resilience, perseverance, how it's been a platform for lament and prophetic voice of the black community by telling the true story of their experience in America. But it's also been, and, and gospel music is particularly responsible for this, a vessel for carrying hope where often it couldn't be seen on the ground level. That there is still hope inside of the waiting to encourage the listener that rescue is coming, just hold on. And then there are even caveats for when faith needs to be extended beyond that specific earthly rescue. And so it's conveyed gratitude, it's conveyed exuberance and expressive joy that sometimes just needs repeating. Amen. Sometimes, have you been in that season? I'm saying these words, my mind doesn't believe it, so I'm going to keep singing this phrase so that my heart and my mind can come into alignment with my spirit and what the scriptures are saying, or even to say them in spite of the way that I'm feeling right now. It's like this meditative effect where you push back on depression, push back on your list of bad things, worries, anxieties, etc., and sometimes that repetition is just like balm. It's oil, it's soothing, it's something that comes and helps correct our thinking in the midst of these things, or at least allows us some level of, uh, uh, of pushing back on those in the midst of whatever we're experiencing. Gospel music is a new genre to me overall, and by that I mean I didn't grow up listening to it. I was thinking, though, of a very unique way in which it, um, I benefited from gospel music, a way in which it came into my life. 
and contributed to my walk is when I was very first coming to church. Um, how, I don't, how many, well, I can't, I can't ask that, it'd be too. Um, for those of you who came in from the outside, okay, who did not grow up in the church and then jumped in and you're like, what is this, man? Someone handed you, maybe, a card or a piece of paper that said, if you listen to this group, secular list of musicians, then try this group, and it's a list of Christian musicians, all right? So at the time, I listened to mostly hip-hop, R&B, and so it's like, hey man, if you listen to Notorious B.I.G., try Gospel Gangsters. That's a real thing. I'm not trying to, like, hate on the Gospel Gangsters. They didn't, it, was, it wasn't the same, all right? Uh, I, I remember, let me, let me say one though that I love, like, if you listen to Outkast, then over here is Grits. Has anyone listened to Grits? They still hold up, all right? I'm still going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to promote them all the way. Pigeon John, he can hold that down. Then, then some of these R&B kind of things would pop in, and what happened was eventually I got um, put in front of me uh, a cassette tape of an a cappella gospel team. To this day, I don't remember who it was. If I heard it, I would know it instantly. And so I got this cassette tape, I popped it into my cassette player, and listened and listened, and it was awesome. Some songs I thought were great, some I thought were, eh, okay, you know, as it was going. And then when it came time to like pop at it and throw in something else, it was stuck for a year and a half. <laughs> Can you imagine? Listen to all the, I mean, I don't know what you were doing in high school, uh, but I mean, I'm going to school, coming back from school, gospel acapella. I'm going to work, coming home from work gospel acapella. I'm doing, going to the movies, going to the river, hang out with my friends. If somebody was in my car, guess what they got to listen to? Gospel acapella music. I'm coming back home late night from places I shouldn't be, from parties, bonfires, out in the desert, craziness is happening. Guess what I listen to on the way home? Gospel acapella. And in the moments of a year and a half of trained, facilitated by only the Holy Spirit, because I wouldn't have listened to that on the way home from a party, God is sowing into my life lyrics and truth and reflections of his word and mercy and grace that leads to repentance over and over and over. And eventually, I didn't realize how deeply this was in me. I would say these phrases back to people. Like, I didn't know. You don't grow up hearing God is good and all the time, I learned it from this acapella group. You all knew that without me saying anything, because you're good church people. That wasn't my story. And so I'm hearing these phrases, these pieces, these truths, and they're doing all the different beautiful things, all because unknowingly God stuck. Now eventually I got like a butter knife and unhooked it and checked it out, pulled it out, had to make sure it didn't snap the little tape on the inside, right? Wound it up and returned it to the owner a year and a half later. But those songs are still in me. God was sowing ideas in this perspective from this church without me even realizing, and they would pop up and come out of me, overflow without me even trying. In God's wisdom, he snuck gospel music and, and perspectives from the black community into my life, shaping me towards grace and repentance and hope and joy in ways that I had never heard or seen before. That's what music does. 
right? It's a great discipleship tool. It trains your thinking, and it is a way in which it can kind of build into your psyche without you realizing it. In fact, what I want you to see today, even as we have posted, like, like Pastor Ken mentioned, the prophetic way in which a lot of the secular artists would, would speak to the black experience in America and shape those things, and that we have this then answer to that. The hope is found in very much so gospel music. We get to see these different ideas in the midst of it. And whether you know it or not, in fact, if you've ever listened to any rock music ever in your life, you have to know that was influenced by black musicians. I would even say would not exist today without black musicians coming from the field songs and the spirituals and then influencing our culture by proxy through folk and jazz and rock and all these things. They all got established, built into chords, rhythms, syncopation. Most everything was straight 4-4. Four, four. Maybe a 3-4 if you want to get crazy. I like that no one who's not a musician in here, you're like, okay, dude, whatever. I don't know what that means. But having these off-syncopated beats, these things would be irregular. The imperfection of the music that would dance upon what was considered normal and created its own world all around it. It shapes our affected understanding of culture today, even when we don't realize it. Much of the gospel music that has been inspired, uh, much of the gospel music we have is inspired by scripture. And so um, by, by the stories we read in them, by the poems that are recorded inside of it, songs, all of these different things have been brought to us often through gospel musicians. And so I want to focus on one song in the scripture today that I think is um, very close to the heartbeat of some of the early, at least the earliest parts of the spirituals. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk chapter 3. While you're turning there, I know we're going to have the verses up here for you, but Habakkuk chapter 3 is obviously coming off of the first two chapters, and what I want you to see is Habakkuk chapter 3 in its entirety is a song. The whole chapter is a song. One-third of this book is a song, and what's happening in the midst of this is that you have a prophet having this dialogue with God, even sometimes accusatory, the way that he speaks. And in the midst of it, he's talking to God about the injustice that he's experienced, the violence that's prevalent in the land of Judah. God's people are under attack, and the nation of Babylon is about to crush them, and he knows it. So he's questioning God. Why do you allow evil to happen in my time? Why do you let them go unpunished while the righteous suffer? God responds to Habakkuk in the book, and he says to them that justice will be served, albeit in a way that seems unconventional or even delayed, amen, in human understanding. When God delivers his response, he does so in a way that puts Habakkuk in his place. The prophet is humbled before God, and he begins to recount then the grandeur of God's existence, of his power. He understands, like, okay, there's this moment in Egypt where you came through. There's the point where we crossed over the Jordan River, both of which are waters that they walked across through in dry land. And then he begins to say, in God's uh, use of attack, for both of these situations, that at times he'll use plagues and earthquakes and rivers and seas because he is the master of them all. And then we pick up in chapter 3, verse 11. I'm going to read it all from verse 11 to the end. Sun and moon stood in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. Remember, they're under attack. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed. 
You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. I think he's talking about Pharaoh here. He stripped him from head to toe with his own spear, pierced his head, and when those warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though they would devour the wretched who are in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there, is, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, here's, here's, here's the turning point, listen, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I'm going to read it again. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And then he kind of finishes out. The sovereign Lord is, uh, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. For the director of music on my stringed instrument. And we know it's a song. So, so without reading the whole book, you don't get the full effect regarding Habakkuk's tonal change. He has a complete shift, a radical shift from one end where he's attempting to say, God, do this. You should be doing it this way. The thing you should do, let me tell you how to run your world, God. And all of a sudden, in order to bring about justice, God's eventually expressing his, Habakkuk eventually comes to a place where he's expressing his trust and his faith in God's sovereignty, despite the uncertainties of the future. Habakkuk affirms that God knows best. He affirms that even while anticipating massive destruction at the hands of the Babylonian soldiers, Yahweh will bring about justice somehow, some way. I just don't know how it's going. Then verse 17 brings it a little closer to home, this list of material disasters where all the crops and livestock are lost and they don't know where they're going to get food to eat. And amid the suffering and loss, Habakkuk learns that he can trust God, and with that trust comes great joy. Now listen, not joy in the circumstances, but joy in God himself. There's a difference there. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And so Yahweh truly has become the prophet Habakkuk's strength. Now what we have to see here is that Habakkuk has seen so many tragedies in his time. He's literally looking in the face of blood and war. He's looking at death and violence. He's looking at hungry nights that turn into days. He's seen all of these things. Habakkuk is looking directly into the eyes of the Babylonian Empire, the possibility of death or captivity, no matter what. And he's saying, I don't know if we get out of this. I don't know if this ever ends. I'm not sure if there is a way out of this. And now, 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 bring it to our world. Most of us can't relate to the level of darkness Habakkuk is preaching about, that he's writing about, that he's singing about. Most of us can't, um, we haven't dealt with the level of calamity and hardship that he is witnessing. And I want to give some caveat because some of us have walked through seasons, maybe even close. Maybe you read something from Habakkuk and you're like, oh, that sounds like my life. And when this is done, most of us don't have the ability, though, to relate to the hardships that he is speaking about, right? And so what I want to say here today, and, 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 and even Colin was, was affirming this, certainly everyone in this room has dealt with sorrow. 
Certainly every single person in here has dealt with pain, and I want to say your pain is absolutely real. You will not hear me try to minimize it in a way that tries to make it not real. It's real, but as we kept saying over and over in our preaching collective, all pain is real, but pain is relative, okay? There are heights and depths that maybe we haven't explored yet in our lived experience. And I want to give you just one example here. Um, and uh, I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this the way, the way that I'm telling it in this way, but often I've mentioned to you all that I grew up in a trailer park and that I grew up pretty poor. Well, um, when, I, when this comes up, what eventually happens is there's a person around me who in their best ability to try to relate and to be well-meaning will say, oh yeah, me too. And, and like, look, if you grew up the way that I did, there's a, there's a mentality, there's a language that kind of associates. I can kind of tell usually like, yeah, 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 you've seen some stuff, man. I can, I can, I can see that. Or like, ah, yeah, I'm not sure. And eventually what will happen is it comes out that they're like, well, what, what they really meant was their family went on a budget for a season. That was, man, by golly, that was hard. I had to buy the Kroger brand bread. I couldn't go on vacation, or maybe this year we only got one instead of two. I've only eaten Top Ramen, you know, for lunch at a time. Like, like, I get that, and I get that that was bad for you. I get that that pain is real. Again, I'm not trying to diminish the, that, that reality. It is real, but it's not the same. It's not the same. In fact, when you add that layer, especially of uncertainty, where you could, you know, like, all I need to do is just, like, not be on a budget for today. Well, look, we can fudge the budget every once in a while, and that option is there to you. It's not the same. And when you add that second layer of uncertainty, like Habakkuk is saying, I don't know if this is going to end. I don't know when this ends. I don't know if ever it ends. That level of pain multiplies in a different way. And so if you don't know how to get out of it, there's this added layer of fear. There's this added layer of, yeah, if you couldn't get out of it and you wanted to, it doesn't relate to the person that kind of voluntarily went through a difficult season of kind of clinching down. There's a bit of sorrow that just doesn't enter your imagination because there is an escape route right? A a kind of desperation can develop in this that if you didn't live through it, you can't fully understand. And I want to take that that last story and step it one more. Um, Because where I learned this lesson one day, so there was a conflict in our household. We were living um, with a gentleman. And um, this conflict led to him saying, we, my, wife, my, my mom and I could not live in this house anymore. So, so um, man, I'm trying to decide how much, how much, how much is relevant. Um, so, so I'm leaving, and when I come back, you all have to be gone. Pack up your stuff and be out. Okay, so we pack up our stuff into uh, a Pontiac 6000, gold, you know what I'm saying? Gold, Pontiac 6000. It's, that was the ride back then, all right? All of our stuff is packed into the back. We drive a few blocks away, pull over to the side of the road for the night, and it's like, okay, this is where we're sleeping tonight. We don't have anywhere to go. We don't have anyone to meet up with. In the end of the night, I remember this, uh, I hit the lever, leaned back as far as it could with all of our stuff in the back. My mom in the driver's seat hits the lever, leans back, and I remember making this joke. I said, good thing we don't have a Porsche because I don't think we'd have room to fit in this car. You can laugh at that, it's okay. Obviously, if we had a Porsche, we wouldn't be in that situation. And we went to bed. 
And the fear in my mind was, I don't know when this ends. This could be my reality for the rest of my time here. I don't know when it ends. Now, now I found out even just a year ago from my mom, um, I quickly was like, mom's like, go live with your friends. So I live with my friend. And that was a bad situation, but it wasn't like as bad as our situation. I found out that my mom stayed at least another week in that car, and I just didn't know it. She protected me from that knowledge. Eventually, she found a situation where she got some friends to say, hey, we're, we're sharing this house. These two ladies, um, they're, they're, they were super nice to us and said, we'll rent you a room. And so for the next year, my mom and I shared a room inside of um, one of the bedrooms in this, it was a double-wide, y'all, double-wide trailer. Uh, so we were balling out of control in those days. And, um, and then eventually, we rented different parts and people moved out and we, um, it was a place that we mostly lived in in that time. So, so here, here, though, like, there's a way in which I look back and I think to myself, it was only one night. Stop being a baby. Like, I think that about myself to me. But when I went to bed that night, I did not know it was one night. And that fear was insane. That added layer of not knowing that you can get out is so different than entering into something because you chose it. Now, Pastor Ken was trying to make sure that we understood this last week. And my point is, and I know I'm being redundant, all, I understand all pain is real. It's not all the same. And I also want you to know, like, I get not all pain is financial. I have never walked through certain pains that you all have. There are certain sicknesses and things that you have dealt in that I don't know the depths of because I haven't had health issues like that. There are certain things that you all have walked through that I can learn from, and if I ever walk through that experience, I'm going to need you to teach me how to get through that, but we all have to recognize that there is an ignorance that doesn't give us imagination for the fullness of what that pain is because it is relative. And while you might experience pain, some might have deeper valleys than you. While you might experience joys, some might have a higher ceiling, bigger mountains that they've climbed because they've been to so low of an extent. So I want us to see these crevices as something that will light up our imagination and our curiosity. Not compete against each other, but to be able to say, man, I want to know what you've been through. I heard stories the other night from some of our students that I had not known ever in my life. And there's a deeper respect that that cultivated in me for them. And so my hope is that it creates a type of curiosity for listening to people's stories in a way that allows us to see them in fresh new ways. Now, if you remember, um, this was a lot of what, what Ken was trying to get to us, that white people cannot fully fathom the true weight of what it means to be black in America with its disadvantages, its assumptions inside of our uh, nation, the way that the, that the black community is constantly in an unending upstream battle that is fought every day. And again, it's never ending, Right? You said life sentence. There is no out or escape. And when I was climbing out of the valley of my trailer parks, I still could lean on my white skin. I still could lean on some expectations and understandings and things that they might say, well, he's, he's probably a pretty good kid. He just had a bad upbringing. Okay, so, so this gets reflected throughout all of gospel music. Bring it back to the music stuff. If this lyric is true, this is our story, this is our song, and that song is birthed from a story. Every gospel song that we might encounter, we might be guilty accidentally of singing lyrics and engaging in themes and even misunderstanding songs that were born from experiences and cultural references that we just don't have any context for. And so we, we could, um, I'll say this, I, I was interacting with this guy, I think we have a picture of him, did we, did we get that picture up there? Um, he's the choir director, his name is it's Professor Kenneth Anderson. 
When I was um, in high school, I went to this camp. They had a gospel choir there. I was in California. Um, and then I eventually did other things. I was the dean. I was the worship leader. I, get, I spoke and did other things at this camp. Um, and I interacted with this guy. And as a worship leader, I, I found out he was, and let me give his, his cre- credits here. He's the director at USD, their gospel choir. He sings and holds down the, the uh, history of gospel music. And he is also in charge of the UCSD gospel choir and the Martin Luther King Jr. community choir in San Diego. So he's kind of a big deal, and he's just wandering around, being nice enough to get us going with the gospel choir at this small camp. I'm like, hey, Ken, can we talk? And I'm like talking, man, I'm, I want to write music, and like, I think I should bring in some, some of the spirituals. And he's kind of like, hmm, okay, tell me more. And I tell him more. I'm like, dude, I want to do Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. If you didn't know, uh, this little light of mine has you, mostly its roots in there. And there's deep, some deep, beautiful stuff in there. And he's like, um, can we talk later? And we talk later. And he's like, ah, man, I love you. I love your heart. Don't do that. I'm like, why not? That's a good idea, man. He's like, these are written from experiences that you don't understand. They have communications and symbolisms that you don't get, that you just can't possibly understand. So he's like, I love you. I love your heart. I like that you're wanting to center this style of music, but you need to do it in a different way. This is not the way. Now, I, I ended up still recording this little light of mine and doing some other things and because there are more crossover things and connected to our context in New Orleans later. But what I want us to do is to, um, if, if you're from the white community, we're grasping this idea that there is a gap between us and the understanding and possibly the liturgy and songs of the black community, right? So, so if I could take you just beyond the understanding, because maybe you got that already. Thanks, Eric. That's, that's fine. We understand that cognitively. But for those who are not born in the black community, we are also called to love the black and brown siblings so well that I want to call a few things into our attention and say, now that you know that, what now? Now that you know that's true, what now? And I have three things that I want to convey to us before we end today, and I'll do them quickly because I see time is running out. Dig deeper, get curious, because what I want you to do is to allow this understanding as you encounter, first of all, gospel music and music written from different cultures than you were born into, I want you to cultivate a deep respect for the story behind the song. I want you to cultivate a deep, deep respect for the story that is behind the song. There is resilience inside of these communities that maybe you've never had to walk through. The ability to trust God before equity and justice have been established. I don't know how to do that. Not well, not in a massive way, not in a communal way. But there is a way in which There are songs built to encapsulate trust before it has ever even been established that the pain and the hardship are still present in my circumstances. Even so, I will praise you, God, because justice is coming. I don't know how, I don't know when, but it's coming, and I believe you for that. That's just a category in my life that I'm not really developed in. 
And when you have these experiences, it gives you the ability to process a wider range of lament at the top and, or at the bottom and a wider range of joy and scope at the top. And so um, often in the Nine White Church, and, and let me say, it's been, this is my experience. Mostly suburban white churches have this kind of keeping up appearances thing where we can't go too expressive or too far into one thing or the other. We can kind of pretend that things are okay and that gets a pass in our church while in other communities, church is not just a safe place, it is the expected place to bring these things. That you would perfectly come and have a liturgy that builds songs that would meet you where you're at and not try to sugarcoat those things, but allow you the full expression of lament and the full expression of joy at the top when rescue does occur. So yes, there might need to be a verse or chorus on repeat as we talked about. Yes, there might need to be a moment of grief without consolation laid out on the floor because I can do nothing else because the loss that I've experienced doesn't let me keep up appearances in front of you, and I'm told that church is a good place to bring that. It's built for it. I might dance in these aisles because today is a good day, but I don't know if I get that day tomorrow. So for now, here, I'm dancing. Songs that encapsulate, capture resilience in the likeness of Habakkuk's song that we just see, the onset of possible destruction, and again, yet I will praise you. And when we don't have fully developed appreciation or respect for it, we can minimize it. I'm going to quote Dr. Jamar Tisby. He says, don't ignore black pain, explore it and understand it. Don't minimize black pain, validate it. Don't avoid black pain, work through it. We could add on to that, don't justify it, don't alienate it, don't try to erase it, in fact, do the opposite. And so here's the next thing, let this knowledge cultivate respect, and once that respect's there, I want you to become a student of the stories. Learn about these things. What I mean about it is like learn about them, but also learn from them because there's an education to be had inside of these stories. Start with our musical theme, right? There are so many documentaries. I listen, there's so much I could talk about about gospel music and the way it developed that I just don't have time to get into because I listened to like three documentaries on repeat as I was preparing for these things. Books about the history of gospel music, the way black music has shaped our current musical landscape. And I've tried to give you little tidbits today, but the way the spirituals developed and the symbolism found in it. It's uncanny. The way it was used to pass time in hot, long days in the fields, the stories built into them, and the way they recorded a history that was attempting to be erased, held, soothing in the midst of hardship, and as I already mentioned, the influence that it has had on today's modern jazz folk and rock music is it's undeniable. So the hope and the faith that is baked into it, no matter what, and this is one that... Um, it hits a little different maybe today. The resistance and the subversion woven into it. One documentary said this, spirituals became synonymous with hope, whether for freedom or perhaps the darkest form of emancipation, death. And so this song, right after the emancipation took place, oh freedom, oh freedom, oh freedom over me. Before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. That's hope that works through any situation. 
It gives the context to understand a little better when we know the story behind these things. When you learn and you develop the respect, but then you start to learn from it. You broaden your perspective. You remember that it's a part of the gospel story. It's a part of the biblical story. And hear this, it's a part of God that you may not have encountered yet because you haven't walked through that thing. And so you become a student of that story so that when I walk through that moment, when I encounter that thing, I have a brother or sister in Christ that I can go to and say, I've never experienced this before. How did you do it? How did you walk through this thing? And then you sit at the feet of black leadership and allow that wisdom that's often held in the hands of grandmothers on porches, not books, that's held in the stories of old men playing dominoes, chess, not necessarily in the documentaries because they were pushed to the side. Come with the curiosity of becoming an eager student. Don't assume you already get it. Don't assume, assume that if you already get it, you're probably going to miss so much more than you realized. And then the final thing here, respect it, learn from it, and emerge as an ally of the story. And I have one last story that I want to tell you today. Um, I encountered a gentleman um, who I was telling, he's like, why do you care about this stuff so much? Why are you getting so like weird about all this stuff? And this is in a previous church that we were at. This is one of the elders at the church, and I was having this conversation because he did not like what I was saying. <clears throat> and, and there was a moment wherein an aha clicked for me because I said, he said, how, why, do you, like, why is this a thing to you? I'm like, dude, I mean, I've told you, like, I kind of grew up poor, and there was a moment where I started hearing the language and thinking to myself, oh, I've, I know what you mean. I've tried to explain, like, that, that, those people don't like me. Well, how do you know? I don't, I don't know how to tell you that. I just can tell by the things, the circumstances, the stuff going on. And there would be a way in which um, I would hear people talk about their experiences. And instead of lacking trust in that experience, I would believe like, oh, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, I, I, don't have to, I don't have time for stories. I wish I had more. He looks at me dead in the eye and he says, well, Eric, I grew up in difficult circumstances and I got through it. And anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps Put the stuff away, climb up out of the thing, make something of yourself, get it together, stop feeling for, sorry for yourself. And that was the moment that I realized I am different than what he is thinking. Because instead of that, I had this empathy like, man, I wish someone had thrown me a lifeline. I wish that somebody would have helped me. Like, I get that. that it's not like you can just get yourself out of it. That's not it. And if you think that, you don't understand the story. And I realized in that moment, oh, you weaponized your understanding of this story. And now you're using it to bully minorities into doing something that you want them to do instead of empathizing, instead of understanding, living with someone in that and trying to help become an agent of change for the systems. And I knew in that day this was so deep. You and I are not the same. We've got to get apart. We're doing different. We have different things ahead of us. And I had to walk away from that situation. So, so here is, here's what I want us to get from that. I think if we're not careful, we can do the same thing, right? This is, this is one of those things like we all live in America, the land of opportunity, right? And you can quote from that book all day that you want. What I'm saying is that it is not equal. It is different than we might realize. And there is an understanding wherein we can say and cultivate this, this desire to be an ally and not an enemy. And that goes a long way. Okay, so, so as we establish, so, so we want to become res, res, respecters, some respect on that name. 
We want to become students, and we want to become allies if you're in the white community. We have a lot to learn, and, uh, and, and in this final move, just like Habakkuk, what we see is a capacity for beautiful, powerful faith and celebration. That in God's grace, he handed us a way to name the sorrow. Thank you, Habakkuk. Thank you, David. Thank you over and over. Naming the pain, naming the problem. But in God's grace, he also gives us that shift. Yet I will praise the Lord. So it's not just the pain and not just the sorrow. There is a coming up out of that up and into a new world where you get to sit back and say, Jesus, thank you. Because I did not know if I was going to get this far. I did not know that I was going to make it to this day. I didn't know if I was going to graduate. So look, I might get a little bit loud right now. And so I, I, I have this, this way in which this joy comes from a depth and a rooting that is so big that your joy has this capacity, and maybe all of us wouldn't understand if we hadn't experienced those things. And so we want to enjoy this, become those who would, who would learn from that joy, celebrate victories alongside, understand that there may be bigger victories to come that we hadn't understood. And so um, in this call to action, here's, here's, here's the la- very last thing, very last thing. In, in the white community, we want to create a posture of curiosity for this liturgical expression. Not just in the black community, it's Black History Month. So let's learn from this one right now. Gospel songs, the spirituals, all the ways in which this has helped. We want to lean in. This is a way in which we love the black community. This is a way in which we learn. This is a way in which we share in the story so that we can actually share in the song without appropriating it. And for those coming from an orientation wherein your songs do tell your stories, from deep valleys and high highs, from mountains and margins. My hope is that today you feel seen and appreciated, that you do feel respected, and that it is your time to sit as the liturgical, songwriting, preaching, testimonial, so that the rest of us can sit at the feet and learn from it. We can hear your song and your story that it informs our story and we walk out of this together. We put up a new sign out there that says we're all in this together. And that's the last thing I want us to hear today. We're stronger when our voices are all present. We're stronger when our voices are all prominent. We stand united in gospel community better, in the likeness of Christ better, and with a stronger witness to the world when we understand we're all in this together and everyone has an equal voice at the table. But this is how it has to be done. Let's respect, let's become students. Learn from each other. I want to pray and ask for God to make this true of our community today. And so, Father, as we, as we close up today, uh, and, and we're, um, we're living in the challenge of what it means to decenter ourselves as a white community, we're living in the wonder and the awe of what it means to elevate those who have possibly been pushed to the margins by a culture that did not appreciate them. And so there's work to be do, done. But that work can be a lot of fun. We can actually have fun together in the doing. If our hearts are right and ready to receive. So God, would you do whatever is necessary to turn the tables on those things? We celebrate the history that is even recorded in your words, the black history that continued from Africa into 
the Americas and still exists today with the residual um, pains and traumas, heartaches and inequities that exist today. God, would you allow the story to be created through the song and sewn deeply into our hearts so that it changes us, God. Father, change me. God, I'm saying this. Eric Thien, God, I'm saying change me. Father, would that be the heartbeat of our entire church? We ask for this right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.